Dr. Jerome Loveland is a pediatric surgeon. He's the head of pediatric surgery at Chris Hani Baragwanath Academic Hospital. It's attached to Wits University. Is it anything like what George Clooney portrayed in the series of ER? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody comes in and gives you an exact diagnosis. The, the ambulance guys come in and give you that precise diagnosis. You know what to do. There are a thousand really good and qualified people all around you, each professional, each able to do it in this state-of-the-art hospital with slick equipment that works 100% of the time. It's not like that. It's not like that. I mean, listen, you've got to give credit where credit's due. We have some phenomenal pre-hospital emergency medicine practitioners who who will do a fantastic job at making a diagnosis and resuscitating the patient. But no, nobody's got that type of insight into providing us with the diagnosis. I mean, we would become superfluous, wouldn't we? Um, (laughs) You know, if you look at our unit, it's a very high-intensity unit. We see multiple patients coming in during the days. You often have to triage between the patients. It is, uh, on, on the floor, very hectic. Um, certainly the behind the scenes stuff isn't quite the same as, as ER. No, no, there are not so many affairs and relationships and things like that. You're blushing. Well, not on little. the hospital premises. Not on the hospital premises. <laughs> not on the hospital premises. But here we've got a scenario in South Africa. Badly managed healthcare systems, well funded, but funding, as we saw recently with a billion rand disappearing out of the Gauteng Health Department budget. We saw uh, also um, life esidemeni. I mean, just the, the crisis of confidence in South Africa's public healthcare system is at an all time low. And you work within that system every day. How do you go to work with a skip in your step? I mean, you're right. I think we've been very fortunate in that we. We do drive a relatively small component of that system in terms of pediatric surgery. Um, It's a very niche market, should I say. (laughs) Probably a term you're more familiar with. But it's something that we've we've been able to impose a lot more control on um, over the years. And despite the chaos that surrounds us, we've been able to create an environment that is very conducive to, to work. And it is conducive to improving the care and the results that our patients receive and and get. Describe your environment to me, because the vast majority of people who have not ever been into Krishani Baragwanath Hospital would have a particular image of Krishani Baragwanath Hospital, of long queues of people on uh, blankets on the floor, for example, waiting in corridors for care. That's a typical image somebody might have, and some of it may be true, some of it may be not true. But you've carved out this niche and actually created a pediatric unit within Baragwanath that is comparable, I'm sure, to most pediatric units anywhere. Yeah, it is. Look, I mean, if you look at Baragwanath, Baragwanath Hospital was built originally by the Welsh um, the Welsh Army as, as a military barracks with a view to handing it over um, or to becoming a healthcare facility after the war. Um, and it is a military barracks. If you look at, it's in general a single-story institution. And from our office, which is where we work with the Burns unit immediately adjacent, it's over a kilometer to the neonatal unit where we treat our, our neonates, our newborn babies, with our big kids stuck in the middle, sort of 750 meters away. So it's a vast institution. I think some perceptions are often wrong. I'd have to say that you won't find patients lying on the floor covered by a cardboard box instead of a blanket. I think the staff at Baragwanath, both clinical and administrative staff, 
for many years, and I think there's an institutional history to that, have never shut their doors and will have always strived to provide the optimal patient care that they that they possibly can. I think sometimes that puts a hospital in a difficult situation where you say, we're not going to close, and it does create queues and patients waiting for, for beds. But the heart behind the staff is to provide optimal care, and it's very good. But the system is not structured in a way that is necessarily conducive to great care. So you look at this scenario in which you operate and you say, how do I make it better? Because you could choose just to go to work every day to do the bare necessity of providing the best possible pediatric care you can do, or you could go an extra mile. You've created this organization called Surgeons for Little Lives, providing an environment which is superlative to what one would expect in a public health care system. I'd say that we offer a pediatric surgical service that equates to any pediatric surgical service in the developed world with a lot to improve still. If we go back, why did we do it? So when I trained, I trained at Johannesburg Hospital. And in those days, as I was training, the leading pediatric surgical institution in South Africa was Red Cross Children's Hospital in Cape Town. And it was the hospital that everybody spoke about and got funding. And I looked at it from Johannesburg Hospital's perspective and I thought, I'm being trained by these two fantastic pediatric surgeons. Why don't we at WITS have as good a reputation? And it was because we we weren't putting ourselves out there. The second thing was that below Johannesburg Hospital in those days was Baragwanath Hospital, Mm -hmm. which probably did three times the work and got absolutely no resources. So it's been a journey. So the, the first thing was when I finished was to go across there, in fact, with one of my senior colleagues, to improve the clinical service just the clinical service that we provided to our patients. At the same time, we embarked on a process of publishing what we were doing. And whilst the results initially weren't equivalent to those in the developed world, it was a starting point. We were able to identify problems and then intervene to fix those problems. So our clinical service improved, our recognition started to improve, and we actually started to generate interest from funders. And a a charitable component to fundraising, it's not novel. I mean, Red Cross do it very well. All leading pediatric hospitals do it. Great Ormond Street, Sydney Children's Hospital. So we started evolving this idea of of getting, of building a charity so that it could really invest not only corporate but individual finances to improving the care that we gave to our patients. And that's how Surgeons for Little Lives came about. We grew it over about 18 months in terms of all of the you know, memorandum of incorporation, setting up the board, tax exemption, etc., etc., to put a transparent institution in place that we could get donations from, and not just financial donations, but donations of human capital, um, human thinking, to improve the processes and the care initially that we gave to our pediatric surgical patients. It's then broadened to to their families, so their moms and dads, and we're in the process of rolling it out to pediatrics in general. And that's really enabled us to just provide a better level of care and also to identify where we're providing poor care 
with a view to improving it in the long term. How do administrators respond to this? Because administrators get it in the neck constantly for the fact that Joburg Jen, Charlotte Matlake, doesn't have sheets, doesn't have beds, stuff is stolen, stuff comes in the front door, disappears out the back door. The, the story is a legion. Suddenly you come with this bright spark idea that you can create a small center of excellence within a widely dysfunctional system. Are you seen as a threat or an asset? So I'd have to say we're seen as, as an asset. I mean, initially, initially were you seen as uh, as a guy looking. You want to make me look bad. You want to make me one hundred percent. So I was I was thrown out of a a uh, exco meeting at the hospital by the CEO. We we had the plan in place. We had our logistics partners in place. We had our finances in place to build an outpatient department and a parental sleepover facility. And the CEO threw me out of the meeting. Um, he was completely disenchanted threatened and in fact i had to elevate it to the mec for health um who was supportive and i'd have to say though that since then from a management perspective at the hospital and from a gauteng health perspective they've been incredibly supportive Mm. we're having some issues now as we grow where i think other other people become threatened and they can't quite buy into this you know this process and i think they're threatened by the fact that we're there to improve where we know that there are problems and the fact that we are identifying those problems provides a threat but those are small obstacles that we will negotiate many people would struggle to surmount those obstacles many people would be put off by those obstacles how do you manage on a daily basis to go and to save a life go to a meeting where somebody who feels threatened then tries to undermine what you're trying to achieve and maintain a level of optimism and a long-term view that many of us would just go you know what you like it that way have it that way you can go to a nice comfortable northern suburbs practice um which has its own challenges but you could you could do that but you choose not to so I always say this in a kind of tongue-in-cheek perspective. I mean, I'm a capitalist. Um, but we are here as, a, as pediatric surgeons to treat our patients. And it's become easy for us to, to do that. Well, it's not easy to do that. But we found a solution that's making it easier for us to do that. And we've surrounded ourselves by a group of people that have got the same thought process. And where we do sometimes feel a little down and and impeded by these type of obstacles, we have, I think we just pick each other up and we see the good that we do. You know, it's been very easy now. I've never found it difficult. I don't know why. I'm a very positive, happy-go-lucky, get-out-there type of guy. Um, But now that we have finished our big major project and been sustainably running. You created a 20 million rand facility right. that you've just described in right. terms of great health care and having sleepover facilities for parents, right. which is absolutely pivotal when it comes to the recovery of children in that pediatric right. environment. So you've done it. Done it. So now you can wash your hands and sit back and relax and occasionally go and do some surgery or not. No, no, not. So listen, I always say we could stop now. And if we stop now, we could say that we have left a lasting legacy. Put a, plaque, put a brass plaque and say, we did this. We did this. Carry on. But the other way to look at it is this is what we've done. And we know that we can do so much more. And that's why we do it. You know, you only need to come to Barra and do my one hour tour to see what the problems are that we've identified and are busy intervening on and what the problem was. And now we've put this facility in place and you only need to speak to those moms and dads that are sleeping in that facility yeah. to see, geez, guys, we've made a phenomenal difference. 
with actually 20 million rand is a drop in the ocean. But that 20 million rand that we've put has changed the lives of those patients and their parents. How do you take the model of what you've created in a pediatric unit at Barra and then get it accepted in another unit at Barra? and then get it accepted at a unit at Charlotte Matlake, get it accepted at Khrutaski, get it accepted in small town South Africa, which is in such dire and desperate need for this kind of input. I think this model is reproducible. I'll tell you where it starts, and I'm not saying that clinicians aren't committed, but it does start by having committed clinicians to driving the process forward. But also people who can think beyond being clinicians. They're not just there to be functional lifesavers, which is critical. That's the core of the job. But they've got to be able to think more broadly than that. They do. But it starts by being present. Um, And I'm not saying people aren't present. But we run a private practice, a limited private practice. It's very controversial in the the Department of Health. It's called ROPS, um, Remuneration for Work Outside of the Government Sector. It's been abused over the years where people have come to bear between – 8 and 10 in the morning, or any hospital for that matter, and then go and run massive private practices. Um, We believe very, very much in it, but we do it one afternoon a week, um, very well regulated. So the guys are able to supplement their income. They're able to provide our service that we offer at Barra to patients in the private sector. Same doctors, same expertise. Yet, the majority of our time is providing a service at Barraguanath Hospital. I was about to say, you, you call yourself a capitalist, but you're probably the world's worst example probably. of a capitalist. <laughs> um, if you are unable to supplement your incomes, because there does have to be an incentive beyond the public service to dedicate that time to the public service. That's part of South Africa's problem, Absolutely. is that the public service simply isn't well enough remunerated for professionals within it. Mm. I mean, the other thing that, that's that I think has been key to this has been our partners. Um, We have got a partnership with MediClinic. So what do I know about building a medical facility? I mean, nothing. However, MediClinic partnered with us to do all of the design, um, town planning, tendering, tender allocation, procurements, all in in a completely open manner, which enabled us to start demolition of this last project in February of last year and to have a completed project at the end of November. So those on time, on budget and to a high spec. On time, under budget, and to a spec that probably exceeds Santon Medi Clinic. How do we replicate this? In other pediatric units first and possibly then in other parts of the healthcare system? I think it's very easy actually. It's about having a collaborative environment um, with people that can see beyond beyond their sort of immediate empires and their job descriptions. I mean, the one thing that I always say is that, how have we done this? We've done it not by breaking the rules, but a little bit by bending the rules, thinking outside of the conventional to to get it done. Um, When you initially say to the CEO of Baragwanath Hospital, the previous one, that we're going to bring MediClinic in to do this with us, they're like, absolutely not. Who do you think you are? You're like, but hang on. It's not costing you anything. They're providing an absolute solution. And in nine months' time, we will have this facility here. And this sort of the eye-opening part of it is that you can then take them back in nine months' time and say, here you are. I know you had your doubts. I know this isn't how you think as a, and I'm not being derogatory, but a kind of institutionalized government official. But 
you have to think outside of the confines of of your protocol sometimes to get these things done. And that's how we've done it. Mm. Is it reproducible? I think it's absolutely reproducible. I mean, for me, this is the a very good example of a good public-private partnership. And you could almost say that why couldn't NHI run on a similar type of, of system? There's a huge willingness, certainly in the private sector, to do this kind of partnering. And it is about breaking down those barriers of bureaucracy. Mm. Take me through the sort of thinking that you have to have in your own mind on a day-to-day basis. Let's go beyond um, the work of setting up the unit. Two babies are brought into you at the same time. One is bleeding from its nose. One's bleeding from its ears. Maybe those. Uh, maybe it's easy for you to decide which one to go to first. You choose the wrong kid. Both could die. You choose the right one. Both might very well survive. In the ER scenario, you've got to be making split-second decisions, life and death decisions, possibly on a daily basis, possibly three at once, to say, which one do I go to first, stabilize, get to the next one, get to the next one, and then choose who most urgently needs care in a nanosecond like that. Those situations do arise. Sometimes they're very clear-cut. So trauma is the sort of marketed example of of making those decisions so if you get a child let's say that's been stabbed in the heart by its aunt which we had two years ago and a child that has been burnt by hot water the hot water burn is a devastating injury but it's going to be devastating in the long term the stab heart is going to die now So that's an easy decision, and you're going to operate on the stab heart, and you'll come back to the burnt child. The the, the burnt child can be made more comfortable in the meantime. That can be a parallel process. You're not ignoring the burnt child. No. I think most of it comes down to training and to the clinical situation and to experience. And I think this is something that that needs to be highlighted, actually, in making those decisions. Because what makes our unit so successful, or one of the reasons, is that we've got eight senior consultant pediatric surgeons that are all experienced, have been qualified for more than five years, and it is that experience that enables appropriate decision-making for the more junior doctors that are on-site, that have actually only been qualified for a year or two. So it's that teamwork and that experience that is important. And I know this isn't a political discussion, but it is so key for us to keep and retain our senior experienced medical doctors because without that experience that is when your systems really start Mm. collapsing and and that's where the solutionist thinking comes in frankly because how do you create an environment that is sufficiently attractive to retain people like yourself within that system while at the same time ensuring that that system is not abused that you provide the ultimate in care in the public health care system but are allowed on the periphery of that to be remunerated adequately for the extraordinary expense of getting yourself trained, the sacrifices of time and, and energy, and then also to encourage you to be thinking out of the box and more broadly mm. to creating solutions within a system that can be resistant to those solutions. Absolutely, and I think the resistance in the system is key. We have to look after our staff. I think that it's imperative for my consultants to have an opportunity to do limited private practice and um, for the reasons that I've mm. elucidated. Equally, it's imperative to look after our junior staff. And I think that's something that the Department of Health does badly, to be honest. I think that our staff and our unit are happy because they've got restrooms, they've got a Nespresso machine, they've got Wi-Fi, 
which obviously we need for, for our administrative processes, but they can actually go somewhere. Similar, pause for a moment. Yes, and breathe. have a pause and sit down and have mm. a cup of coffee and just rest, you know, and, and we do that badly for our staff in general. That shouldn't be up to us to do. But by doing it, we make staff happy. They want to come and work with us and they embrace their jobs. There are two ways of looking at this. We've got an insurmountable problem. We've got a national health system that fails so many of the people who rely on it so desperately. We can accept that as the status quo and simply live with it. You've chosen to not accept the status quo. Absolutely. How do we get more people to think more like a solutionist in the healthcare system? They're burdened, they're overworked, they're frazzled, burning the candle at both ends. My go-to line, and this sounds a bit simplistic, I guess, but if you want to inspire people, is to start, come and see our unit. It it might sound small, but it, it, it does, it inspires people. And then, to be honest, it has to be collaborative. It cannot be one person. It, it cannot just be just the private sector. I think somewhere along the line, we need to look at models like this, sit down around the table, think outside the box. I mean, I can't tell people how to think outside the box. Uh, I don't know how I... There may be a better solution, frankly, than the one you've devised. Of course there may be. There yeah. may, of course there may. I'm not saying this is the solution. But you've got to think laterally and you've got to think differently. Um, being prescriptive. Is, is, not the way, is not the way to do it, certainly in our situation. I don't think there's a golden egg, but it doesn't come from convention and protocol. It's time to start making, or as you say, I mean, the topic of, of this discussion is solutionist. I mean, it's the only way to, to do it. Dr. Jerome Loveland, who is the head of pediatric surgery at Chris Hani Baragwanath Academic Hospital attached to Wits University, today's extraordinary solutionist thinker.